Amen. Well, you guys can grab a seat. Thank you to the Hazleton crew and Nate for uh, reading this morning. That was awesome. Thank you. Uh, good morning once again. Uh, good to be with you. Uh, this is uh, my favorite time of the year to preach, which is the uh, Advent season. I'm grateful for uh, Rob, who kicked things off for us last week by uh, preaching uh, through the genealogy, which I appreciated him tackling that, so I didn't have to. So I uh, appreciate uh, Rob stepping into that for us, and uh, today we're going to move a little further on into Matthew's narrative. But before we jump in too far, I actually want to pause for a minute and talk about uh, Advent for just a moment. Uh, Advent comes from this Latin term that means either coming or arrival. And this season of Advent has been observed by the church for uh, over 1,500 years. And in one sense, during the Advent season, we do indeed look back. And we look back specifically to the birth of Jesus, and we celebrate the fact that uh, he was born and he came into this world. But that isn't actually the fullest aim of the Advent season. While it's completely appropriate to reflect and celebrate the birth of our Savior, this season throughout church history is actually designed to draw our attention beyond Christ's first coming and to look forward with a patient longing for his second advent. As Titus chapter 2 reminds us, uh, the Apostle Paul there says, We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the Advent season that we step into. Advent is actually a season of waiting. It invites us, before we break forth in the joy of Christmas and all that comes with Christmas Day, when you get to rip open those presents, right, and celebrate with family, before we jump forward to that day, Advent forces us to acknowledge that this world is not the way it's actually supposed to be. That the world that we inhabit and live in is a fallen and broken world that is still in need of full and complete redemption. And there's sort of a cultural rhythm to this Christmas season that actually fights against that, if we think about how our culture works, right? So we tend to get sucked up into the consumerism of the Christmas season, don't we? It's a hustle and bustle. It's a get your Amazon Prime orders in, right? I tried to make a return at a store yesterday. Oh, my goodness, right? It's like COVID never even happened again. I mean, it's crazy this time of year. And what happens is we, we get kind of caught up in this whole consumerism and Black Friday Friday and Cyber Monday sort of become our de facto holy days. And yet, there's no better year than 2020, right, to take a step back from all of this and acknowledge corporately together that something is still deeply wrong in this world, isn't it? And maybe more uncomfortably, something is actually still wrong with us as persons. Something that's so wrong with us that the best gift on your wish list isn't going to solve that problem. Just being in the Christmas spirit isn't going to address the deeper questions of our hearts. You see, this is a year we've all been confronted with suffering, with hardships, with death, division, and darkness. And the season of Advent graciously won't allow us just to skim over that and act like it's not happening. Advent is the time of year we step into the darkness. We step into the pain and the longing of still living in a world that is yet to be made new. We'll feel this, by the way, when we walk through Matthew's gospel accounts. Right? I think in our minds, in my mind at least, I was like, ah, we've done some crazy like Christmas dragon stuff in the past. We'll calm down this year for Advent, right? We'll just go back to the birth narratives of Jesus. Well, then I started reading Matthew again, and sure enough, here's what's going on in Matthew. You have Jesus' checkered genealogy, to put it lightly, that we saw last week. We have a scandalous story we're going to look at today about a virgin birth. 
We have a jealous, bloodthirsty commandment of Herod to murder children in Bethlehem. And then we have a young, poor family who is on the run, fleeing all sorts of things. You see, even at the birth of Jesus, something to celebrate, he comes into a pretty dark place, doesn't he? See, Advent doesn't let us shake that off. Uh, Fleming Rutledge says this about Advent. She says, in a very real sense, the Christian community lives in Advent all the time. It can well be called the time between because the people of God live in the time between the first coming of Christ, incognito in the stable in Bethlehem, and his second coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. Advent contains within itself the crucial balance of the now and the not yet that our faith requires. The disappointment, brokenness, and pain that characterizes life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of the future glory that is yet to come. And in that Advent tension, the church lives its life. You feel what she's saying? That's why I love Advent. Advent is our story. This is the life that we live right now. And it's between that now and not yet tension, by the way, that we've added candles into kind of our Sunday morning liturgy during this season. And for those of you who grew up in church doing this, maybe that was uh, a good remembrance for you. You weren't able to do this at the school because we didn't have any candles allowed. But now that we're here at the bar, here are the candles. <laughs> the candles are symbolic. Okay, the candles are symbolic. It's the idea that over the next few weeks, we are building expectation and there is an increase of light that is set before us. And each of these candles, which represent hope and faith and joy and peace, they remind us that in a world of profound darkness... We are called as Christians to look to the true light who has come and is coming again. It's meant to stir up longing that one day this present darkness will be swallowed up once and for all by the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. And so as we take a moment to light those candles, as we sit in almost the silence before that, it's meant to stir us up for that return of Jesus. And so that's Advent. That's what we're stepping into and I think it's good for us to pause and, and just pray and ask the Lord to steady our hearts before him as we step into the season. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we thank you that you have come, that Jesus, you've come. We thank you, Father, this was your plan to send a Savior to rescue us. So, Lord, as we live in that tension that we just described between the fact that, Jesus, you've already come, but we're awaiting your promised return, may you strengthen our faith in this season. Help us to take seriously the darkness that exists in our world and in our own lives. And Lord, I know for a people in this room who might look like they've got it all together this morning, but I know are marked by suffering, know are marked by disappointments, broken dreams, fractured relationships, all of that just becomes amplified this time of year. So I pray as we step into Advent that you would meet us with your sustaining grace that we would look to the light of the world that has come and is coming again, and that you would help us to treasure and savor Jesus more deeply in this year. So, Father, I pray you give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to respond to your word today. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as we step into Matthew 1 and the passage that uh, Nate read for us today, here's what I think Matthew is going to lead us to see. The incarnation of Jesus is a disruptive reality to save us from sin and free us from fear. The incarnation of Jesus is a disruptive reality to save us from sin and free us from fear. 
And as we walk through this, we're going to see that this passage reminds us three crucial things about Christmas. That Christmas is the fulfillment of God's plan, that it's the assurance of God's presence, and it is the promise of God's pardon. So let's begin with the idea of Christmas being the fulfillment of God's plan. Look back with me in verse 18. Matthew, having concluded his genealogy, says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. You see, Matthew, more than any of the other gospel writers in the New Testament, he has this particular concern about how Jesus fulfills all of the hopes and promises of Old Testament Israel. So we've already seen in the genealogy that Jesus is in the line of Abraham, the father of the Jews, and David, the promised and, and ruling king back in the Old Testament. But despite the messy brokenness of Jesus' family tree, we're sitting on the other end of 400 years of silence of unfulfilled promises from the people of Israel's viewpoint, of a fact that they have lost their land, they have no king, they might be tempted to feel like they're abandoned. And so Matthew says, then the birth of Jesus took place in this way. But here's the thing, this, actually, this isn't actually about a birth. I mean, you've read the story now, right? It's actually about a conception. And if we're paying close attention, we're struck that something strange is going on here. If you had to imagine that you're reading this for the first time, this would strike you as odd, wouldn't it? And Matthew's been very particular with his wording. Back up in verse 16, Joseph is listed as the husband of Mary, and then he says, of whom Jesus was born, which is a strange way to word that if you read the rest of the genealogy. The rest of the genealogy simply says, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, but not Joseph and not Jesus. And that leads us to this verse where Mary, who is engaged to Joseph, that's what betrothal means, was found to be pregnant. But Matthew makes it clear this was before they came together. And yes, they came together is what he's talking about in, in that way you're thinking about, okay? This child was from the Holy Spirit. Now let's not sidestep this. This is a miraculous claim. The Bible's not interested in telling us the specifics of how all this works, so trust me, I'm not getting into that this morning. The point is that this is a miraculous claim. And we can't, brothers and sisters, backpedal away from this claim, otherwise we lose the force and the hope of what Matthew is trying to tell us. See, Matthew and Luke are telling us that a virgin is pregnant and will give birth, which is only possible because the all-powerful God willed this to be the case. Which makes the virgin birth, by the way, a pretty big deal. The virgin birth actually shows up in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, two of the earliest and most important historic confessions of faith that we have. The virgin birth shows up in there. And the reason why it shows up there is because it tells us that there's something different about this child who is coming. And what it tells us is that God himself is intervening to break the regular cycle of births, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, to powerfully demonstrate that he himself has come. You see, the virgin birth tells us that the second member of the Trinity, God the Son, has taken on flesh and blood, that the fullness of God entered the womb of a faithful Israelite teenage girl. This is the doctrine of the incarnation, that God has become man. The pre-existent Son of God adds on humanity while not losing his divinity. 
the virgin birth reminds us that Christmas is more than just a celebration of a birth. Christmas is about a coming. Christmas is about a coming. It tells us that God himself has entered into the darkness and brokenness of this world. He wasn't sending someone else in his stead. He wasn't raising up someone as a representative. He wasn't identifying a rescuer and saying, follow them. No, no. He came himself. And I think familiarity with these stories might cause us to miss just how audacious of a claim this is. I mean, this is an utterly unique message compared to all other philosophies and religions out there, isn't it? I mean, all other religions are something like this, and I'm speaking in generalities, okay? All other religions essentially say there's a sort of mountain to climb or a journey that you are to take. And at the top of the mountain or at the end of the journey is God. And so all these religions, they give you a series of paths. They give you steps to get up the mountaintop and reach God. Maybe even all of these religions are actually complementary paths up the mountain that they all lead to God, right? But here's the thing, Christmas, and Christmas specifically blows that whole paradigm up. Christmas is why we believe that Jesus is not a way or a truth, but the way and the truth. Because Christmas is telling you and telling us, you can't make it up a mountain. You can't do it. You will not journey and arrive at the destination. Instead, get this, God came down the mountain to get you. That's what Christmas is telling us, and it's utterly unique. The journey is not from you to him, but from him to you. Christmas reminds us that God didn't send us a map. He didn't merely give us instructions to follow. He doesn't give us a program with 12 steps to check the boxes on. No, Christmas is that God gave us himself. He gave us himself. And brothers and sisters, this was always the plan. This was always the plan. Look a little further down in verse 22. Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew's quoting here from Isaiah 7. This is from some 700 years before this birth narrative that Matthew is recording here. I think it's helpful just to set the context there for a minute. So at this time, Ahaz is the king over the southern tribes of Judah. And Ahaz was an evil, wicked king. There's no other way to describe him. He engaged in all sorts of idolatry and sin that led the people astray. And he even committed child sacrifice. I mean, a wicked, evil king. By the way, he shows up in the genealogy of Jesus back in chapter 1. Okay? And at this time, Syria and Ephraim were the increasing military threat against Judah. And so Isaiah 7, 2, earlier in that chapter, it tells us that the heart of Ahaz, the king, and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. He's saying they're fearful. But rather than turning to the Lord for help, Ahaz turns to the Assyrians. He offers them up gold and silver and treasure from the temple and he lets Assyria swoop in as Judah's mighty defender. And so on the heels of that, the prophet Isaiah shows up. And he shows up to Ahaz. And he says, Ahaz, ask the Lord for a sign. It can be as big as you want, as high as the heavens or as low as Sheol, the place of death. Ask for a sign. The Lord wants to give you one. And Ahaz says, ah, I don't want to put the Lord to the test. 
Which, listen, is, is a wise thing, right? Unless the Lord tells you to ask for a sign, okay? So now the Lord, through Isaiah, seems to be a bit irritated. He has given Ahaz a blank check, and Ahaz refuses to cash it. And you know why he doesn't cash it is because he doesn't want to trust the Lord. He wants to trust the Assyrians. He's put all the stock there already, so he makes his unbelief sound plausible. He makes his sin sound reasonable. So God, through Isaiah, says, okay, Ahaz, if you don't want to ask for a sign, I'm going to give you a sign. And the sign that he gives them is this verse. He says, a virgin, a young unmarried woman, is going to conceive, and the birth of this son would be the sign that God is still with his people. Despite the unfaithfulness of the king, despite the unfaithfulness of the people of Judah, me, God, myself, I will defeat your enemies. Isaiah says he will show himself to be their Lord and God even when they don't want to acknowledge it. And Matthew, 700 years later, is looking back at that moment and starting to connect some dots. I think Ray Ortland is helpful here. He says, Matthew saw in Isaiah's prophecy of the Emmanuel sign child a picture of our ultimate salvation. This quote is wrong on the screen. You can take it off, sorry. Pastor Ryan left town early this week. I had to do my best to get my outline in, but here we go, okay? Just, just listen to what I'm saying. We face a coalition of hostile powers far worse than Syria and Ephraim of old. We face the allegiance of sin and death they never go away, and we are no match for them. But at this ultimate level, the baby Jesus fulfills the truest meaning of Emmanuel, God with us. Political crises come and go, but God goes with us into battle against the enemies that can oppress us forever. You see, the people of Israel knew this prophecy. They didn't think it was a literal thing that was going to happen. And Matthew is connecting the dots and saying, wow. Look at how beautiful this is. You see, left to our own devices, we make a mess of things. We might not be as wicked as Ahaz, but how quickly do we trust in anything and everything but God in the moment that we face a trial? You see, we so often don't trust in the Lord. We don't believe that his plans and promises for us are best for us. And despite all of this, the Lord knowing all of that to be true, it was always God's plan to come after us, that he himself was going to come. He has not left us alone. Christmas tells us he has come. Heaven has broken into earth. The sovereign creator, sustainer of the universe was born. That's why Tim Keller says the incarnation is the universe sundering, history altering, life transforming, paradigm shattering event of history. Let's not let our familiarity lose the awe and the wonder that ought to stir up within us. Because that's what Christmas tells us. It's the fulfillment of God's plan. But secondly, it's the assurance of God's presence. You see, familiarity is one danger with these stories. You know what another danger is? It's mere sentimentality. The idea that being in the Christmas spirit and having the warm, fuzzy feelings this time of year, all of those things that we like to associate with Christmas completely missing from Matthew. They're just not there. Be cheer cheerful, be happy, drink your hot chocolate, right? I fired up the fireplace this week, it was awesome, okay? But if you look at Matthew, that's not exactly a sentimental passage. Yes, it's good news, but it sure isn't clean or tidy. It's a bit rough around the edges, to put it lightly. And here's what I want us to see. Christmas is downright disruptive. 
Christmas is disruptive. Let's look again at what's going on here. Mary and Joseph, according to Matthew, are betrothed, which means they're engaged. But it's a little more involved than that in this time period. It was a legally binding pledge to be married. So if you wanted to break this, only a divorce injunction could cause that separation. And most importantly for our story here, sexual infidelity while betrothed was considered adultery. So Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant and he assumes what any other person in human history would assume, since I had no part in this, she must have slept with someone else. And then verse 19, Matthew tells us there. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. See, Joseph doesn't publicly want to make a scene of Mary. So he decides to do an admiral thing. A painful thing, but an admirable thing. I'll divorce her quietly. I won't publicly humiliate her. I won't bring her up on charges. I won't make sure everyone knows I'm innocent. He says, no, I'll just handle this quietly. And you have to imagine, by the way, Joseph, how betrayed he probably feels. He's engaged to be married, and then this happens. And on top of all of this, it's not like they asked for this. Mary and Joseph didn't pray that the Lord would bless them with this opportunity, did they? No, the Lord sovereignly chose them for the task. Now, do you feel the weight of that for a moment? Try to put yourself in their circumstance. There's a weightiness to that. This is not a mere interruption on their lives. This is a complete disruption. Their lives would never be the same because of what's happened here. And I want to argue the same thing is true for us. If Christmas is really true, if God himself has really come, then that message is not meant to be a little blip on the map of our lives. It's not just a minor rearranging of what we've already got going on and the plans that we've made for our lives. It's not a nice, convenient add-on. No, if Christmas is true, it's a complete overhaul of not only our own lives, but of the entire world itself. Christmas is not an interruption, it's a disruption. Have you felt that in your life? When you've wrestled with the claims of Jesus, if you've put your faith in him, has he messed stuff up for you? Is there a disruption that's occurred, or has he just kind of been a nice little add-on to bless whatever you've already planned for your life? Because if Christmas is true, that's not how this works. Mary and Joseph show us that from the first moments this news is there. But here's what I want us to appreciate. That disruption... It's actually God's grace. It's God's grace to shake us up, to awaken us to the hope of the gospel. But each and every one of us struggles to believe that. On a functional level, we like Jesus being an add-on. We don't like Jesus being a disruption. So how do we embrace that disruption? Well, I think we do it in the same way that Joseph and Mary did. Joseph and Mary believed the word of the Lord. They trusted that even though this was an insane circumstance, his plans are actually good. They stepped into that with faith, and the reason why they could do that is they believed that God really was with them, that God had come, that he was with them. You see, I think because of the implications of that, we can learn three things and apply it to our lives from this passage. When we think about God being with us, there's three implications. The first is that we do not have to fear. We do not have to fear. Look at verse 20. But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, 
Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The first words of the Lord through his angelic messenger to Joseph is, do not fear. Joseph, do not fear. Now, he's probably saying that for two reasons. The first is this. An encounter with an angel in the Bible is terrifying. It's terrifying. Angels in the Bible were warriors of God's army. I know in all of our like Christmas storybooks and on our Christmas trees and all that, we have the nice, dainty, white, flowing, dressed angels, right, with the halo. That ain't the angels in the Bible. Angels were terrifying. And so every time an angel shows up, the first thing they say is, don't fear. It's okay. That's the first reason. But secondly, certainly the angel is trying to reassure Joseph about his circumstances. Joseph had every earthly reason to fear, didn't he? I mean, put yourself in this position again. This all is dropped on you like a bombshell. He's considering it. He's wrestling with it, the text says. And we can assume that fear is bubbling up to the surface, can't we? And I think Joseph's fear here taps into something deep within all of us. Because let's be honest with ourselves. We, generally speaking, are a fearful people, aren't we? Our lives are ridden with fear. Everybody this week was posting their 2020 top Spotify artists and how much time you wasted, right, and all your favorite songs and all of that. If you have kids like me, it doesn't matter what your preferences are. Spotify told me my kids dominate my life, basically. In the same vein, one of the more popular app, Bible apps out there that has millions of users posted some of their stats from the year. And it was really enlightening. The top term that people went to a Bible app and searched for the first six months of 2020, you know what the top word was? Fear. It's fear. The most searched, the most read, and the most bookmarked verse in their app was Isaiah 41.10. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. You know what's actually the most repeated commandment in the Bible over and over again? Do not be afraid. Fear not. Why does the Lord keep telling us that? Because we're scared. We're a fearful people, aren't we? And you know why almost every single time the Lord says, Fear not, you know what he connects it with? Fear not, I am with you. Psalm 23 says that, doesn't it? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are with me. And that's before they knew about Christmas. How much more, brothers and sisters, can we have confidence that because God is with us through Jesus Christ, we don't have to fear. So fear not. Secondly, we can embrace the cost of following Jesus. Here's the thing. Mary and Joseph, they obey the word of the Lord, don't they? But that doesn't make their lives any easier. In fact, it makes it infinitely harder. If Joseph would have gone through with his plan, his life probably would have been shaken up for, you know, a season. But he would have been fine in the long run. By embracing this, this was going to follow them everywhere. They're living in an honor-shame society. People would forever assume that either they came together before marriage or that Mary was unfaithful to Joseph. I mean, can you try explaining that situation to your family and friends? Joseph's, you know, trying to explain what's going on. Oh, Mary, yeah, she's pregnant. Mm -hmm. Well, what happened there? It's from the Holy Spirit. <laughs> People are either going to think you're insane or you're gullible, right? I mean, honestly, that's, what, that's the world they were born into. 
This was going to follow them the rest of their lives. They will be socially ostracized for this. And it's not just speculation that rumors were flying. This follows Jesus his entire life. In John chapter 8, Jesus is having a discussion, to put it lightly, with the uh, Pharisees. And they're arguing about credentials, okay? And then the Pharisees are getting fed up with him. And in John 8, 41, they look at Jesus. They say, well, we were not born of sexual morality, hinting that they're assuming he was. Jesus is in his 30s at that time. You see, this follows their family and Jesus the rest of his life. Their lives were going to be marked by scandal. And as a culture, we do seem to love a good scandal, don't we? We seem to be almost addicted to it in an unhealthy sense. But none of us want the tables turned on us, do we? None of us want to be the center of the scandal and the source of the Google or social media searches, do we? But here's the thing. If you have put your faith in Jesus and you are here in this room, you have identified with the greatest scandal in human history. It's already happened. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that we preach Christ crucified. He says it's a stumbling block to the Jews. You know what that word for stumbling block is in the Greek? Scandalon. It's a scandal to the Jews and folly, foolishness to the Gentiles. Jesus says the world will hate us because it hated him first. Jesus says if you want to follow him, you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily. Don't get it twisted. Christmas is disruptive and it's cost. it has a cost on our lives. There's no cutting corners here, and that's because the way of glory is the way of the cross. If we're going to follow Jesus, we're following a crucified Savior, we will follow him there too. So how do we embrace that cost? We remember that he is with us, that he has come and he is with us. He is not asking us to endure something that he himself did not endure in our place. His presence will strengthen, embolden, and encourage, as in stir up courage within us in a way that the world will view as dangerous and offensive and foolish. But he's with us. We can embrace the cost. And then lastly, we can relinquish control. Look at the end of the passage, verse 24. When Joseph woke up from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Now Joseph, who didn't choose this situation, is essentially being asked to be an adoptive father of Jesus, and he doesn't even get to name his son. Isn't that one of the great privileges of being a parent, right? You get to name your children. You can have some great reason for it. You can have some shallow reason. It doesn't matter, right? You get to name them. There's an authority that comes with that, and God removes that from Joseph and Mary. He doesn't even get to name his son. But they obey. They obey. They don't try to institute their own will on the situation. They yield to the sovereign plan and control of God. And listen, one of the primary implications of Christmas has to be this. If God is with us, we can let go of control. We can let go of our own self-determination. We can drop the conditions of, I'll follow you if, or I'll follow you up until you ask me to do this. No, there's no more ifs. If God has come, he has come to be near to us, to be a comfort in our lives, that he came running after us when we wanted nothing to do with him, then we can take our hands off the wheel. 
We can stop trying to white-knuckle our way through life. We can relinquish control. There is something freeing and beautiful in that. Freeing and beautiful for our lives. Even in the face of uncertainty, we can yield to our good God who can be trusted. He has come after us. See, Christmas, if we have grasped it, it's not an interruption. It's a disruption. It will mess everything up in your life, but in the best way possible. So are you fearing? Are you relinquishing control? Are you embracing the cost? That's what Christmas tells us. But we haven't even gotten to the best part yet. Finally, Christmas is the promise of God's pardon. Look at verse 21. She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Bible uses a lot of names for Christ. But the one name that the angel wants to make clear at the very first announcement is that his name will be Jesus because it points to his unique role as savior. You see, Jesus is the Hellenized version of the Hebrew Joshua. Joshua literally means the Lord saves. And while Jesus will be a savior in many ways, the primary agenda of this child will be to save his people from our sins. He has come to save his people from our sins. He came for a greater mission that no one else could take on. He came to seek and save a lost humanity from our greatest enemy and our tireless foe, and that is our own sin. You see, when we look at the darkness of the world at Advent, we have to start with the darkness within each and every one of us. But what kind of savior, if Jesus is to be the savior, comes like this? What kind of savior comes like this? I mean, it's quite frankly silly by human standards, isn't it? I mean, when God comes, he doesn't choose to come in grand fashion for all to see. He doesn't arrive as royalty with fanfare. He doesn't come gloriously from the clouds and announce that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is here. No, instead, God the Son came as a baby, because babies help solve all of our problems, don't they? That's how the Lord chooses to come, low, meek, mild. But he comes that way because it tells us about the kind of life he was going to live and the type of savior he was going to be. He doesn't come in glory this time because he comes to identify with our weakness. He comes to bear our shame. He comes and he lives a life of suffering and he's called a man of sorrows. And that's because the way he's going to be a savior is by bearing a cross. J.I. Packer says this and then we're done. The crucial significance of the cradle at Bethlehem lies in its place in the sequence of steps that led to the Son of God to the cross of Calvary. The Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity, hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, and hope of glory. Because of the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. It's the most wonderful message the world has ever heard or will hear. Christmas tells us the good news that despite our sin, God is with us. He is with us. And if God has come to be with you at your worst, then who could possibly be against you? And what could you fear? 
Christmas is the offer of pardon. Yes, it confronts us with our sin and our inability to save ourselves, but God has come. He has offered himself. Our sins have been forgiven if you've turned to Jesus, and they will be forgiven. Because Jesus, the one who has come, will come again. And so as we wait for that day, remember and be encouraged, God is with you. Emmanuel has come. Therefore, we do not fear. We worship him and him alone. Let's pray. God, we thank you for that glorious message. Thank you, Jesus, that you did come, that you came as a Savior, you came to save us from our sins, that you have dealt gently and kindly with us despite our sin, and that you're in the process of making us and all things new. So, Lord, I pray as we step into this Advent season that you would help us to look and wait with patient longing for your return. Strengthen us for what we need for today. May you help us to take seriously the sin that still remains in our own lives and in your kindness continue to draw us to repentance. Lord, we thank you that you have come to be with us. Thank you you've given us the Holy Spirit to dwell with us. Thank you that he convicts us of sin, but he also instructs us in what is right, and he is conforming us into the image of Jesus. So, Lord, wherever your people today need to be met with the good news of the gospel, may you meet them there. We pray that in Jesus' name.